Good morning. Let me invite you to take your Bibles and go over to uh, 1 Peter chapter 5, 5 through verse 7. 1 Peter 5 and verse 5. You should follow along as I read. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time He may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on Him, because He cares for you. Let's pray. Father, we... um, Thank you that today we can come in the name of your Son and come into your presence and wrap our minds and our hearts and we pray even a whole year around an important verse or verses like 1 Peter 5, 5-7. Lord, we need you today to put within us a renewed desire to seek you in prayer. Lord, I pray that 2010 would be known for many things, but one thing that it would be known for, it would be a a year in which we learn individually and corporately how to take some next steps in what it means to seek your face and also to seek your hand. And so, God, I pray today that you'd use your word to open our eyes and our minds. pray that you'd use your word to prick our hearts so that we could be the kind of people that you want us to be, and we could also be the church that you want us to be. So, Lord, we all know that prayer is important. That isn't the issue. The issue is whether or not we embrace it in the internal part of our hearts and love to seek you. So, God, I pray for a renewed heart and mind today, for our church, for me, Lord, for every person here. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So once again, uh, the beginning of this year, we're uh, going to start off with a special emphasis on the subject of prayer. And the reason that we're going to do this is fairly simple. It is because prayer is a non-negotiable for believers and for the church. Again, prayer is a non-negotiable for believers and the church. In other words, we're commanded to pray. Prayer is the engine that drives the ministry, it's the fuel of life change, it's key to the power of the church. The problem is, however, that understanding that prayer is a non-negotiable and knowing that it is all of those things, the engine, the fuel, the fire, so to speak, um, that's not new information for us. And the problem with prayer is not that we don't know that it's important or that it's not interesting to us. The fact of the matter is, is that prayer is often the most talked about, but the least practiced discipline in the church. If you think back in your life in 2009, uh, many within this room would have to acknowledge that, that prayer was probably at a subpar level. And so that's why every year I like to start on a special focus of prayer. That's why this entire week we're having a special emphasis on prayer. We began the new year with a uh, 24-hour Bible reading and prayer event where we had a number of people right here reading through the entire New Testament and parts of the old praying in 15-minute increments. I just love the fact that um, hundreds of hours of prayer were logged as we ended 2009 and rolled into 2010. And uh, this Sunday marks the beginning of prayer week where we have a variety variety of um, activities for you to engage in in regards to praying with other people. I'd like to invite you to be a part of them. Let me just highlight what we're doing um, this week. On Monday, we have a, a noon fast at the Parish Hall of Christ Church Cathedral. 
Now, if you don't know where this is, this is this really cool-looking church on the circle. And if you've always wondered what it's like in there, you're more than welcome to come, but you have to come and pray. So we're at the Parish Hall of Christ Church at noon, and we targeted downtown because we know many of you work downtown. We'd love to have you take the noon hour uh, this Monday, tomorrow. Give that to the Lord. Come and join us as uh, we pray. You're welcome to bring other believers with you in your office and even lost people if you want. We're just going to have a great time of seeking God's face. On Tuesday, we have a... Um, half-day prayer summit here at the church, which will run from 8.30 to 1. We're shutting the office down, and our entire staff will be in prayer during that time. We think it's a great way to start out the year and just saying, Lord, we need you in our church, and we'd love to invite you as a congregation um, to come and join us for that entire time or just part of that time from 8.30 to 1. And then on Tuesday evening, we have a um, special prayer meeting uh, for Southeast Asia and Japan led by our two missionaries who are going to be heading to that field. Um, Every Wednesday, the first Wednesday of the month, we have what we call noon fast. And the idea is we take the, the noon hour and we fast. We don't eat during that time. Instead, we take the time we would have used to feed our bellies and we use it to feed our souls. And we do that every first Wednesday of the month here. And we're going to do that again this coming Wednesday. And then Thursday, we're going to have a great prayer time down at, in the Brookside neighborhood at the beach, which is the ministry center used to target uh, that neighborhood. We're going to have our ministry partners in and we're going to pray for them and what God is doing um, in that community. And then finally, on uh, Friday, uh, our first Friday Global Prayer Night. We do this every Friday, by the way, uh, the first Friday of every month, and uh, this will be also something that we'll do um, this Friday. So what I'd like to do is just invite you to maybe look at those uh, activities on that list and uh, target maybe one or two of them, maybe come as a family. Uh, maybe your small group would come. Maybe dads, you could say, hey, kids, we're going to go and do this during our lunch hour. Maybe even pull them out of school. I know it's the first week of the year, but oh well. And um, <laughs> just would love to have you come and uh, be a part of uh, our prayer time together and in some way to help your hearts really grow by praying with other people. I, I say this often, but the best way to learn how to pray is not by reading a book, going to a seminar. The best way to learn how to pray is to pray with other people. And so my hope is, is that by kind of laying a foundation today on the subject of prayer, that you'll be motivated to come to one of our prayer events throughout the course of the week. My promise is this, that if you come, you will be motivated to pray. Our time, I promise you, will not be boring. Some of you think of a prayer meeting and you think of snooze bar. And I'm telling you, these times are not boring. We will sing, we will read scripture, we'll seek God's face together. Um, and we'd love to have you come. If you have a special prayer request that you'd like to have prayed for during that time, uh, please email me personally, and I'll be sure that that gets into one of our prayer meetings. Uh, my email is listed on the website under our staff um, icon. That comes directly to me. So we'd love to pray for you or with you at some point this week. So First Peter 5. The main thought or our theme as reflected in the title is this, Pray or you'll become proud. I trust that you'll agree with me that pride is not a good thing. So the problem with pride is that it's bad and we all have it to some degree. In, in fact, if you don't think you struggle with pride, you do, you're proud, you just don't know it. That's, that's the issue. There are few things more unattractive than someone who's full of himself or herself and we all know that pride is a bad thing. So the problem is not knowing that it's bad. That's not the problem with pride. The problem with pride is knowing when you've got it. A friend of mine says it this way, that pride is like bad breath. Everyone knows you have it, but you. See, that's, that's the issue, is that you can't see it well in your own life. 
And I don't know about you, but I can look back on seasons of my life, and now with a little bit of lens of history, I can see, wow, you know what? During that season, I was kind of a little too full of myself. But in that moment, if you would have said to me, you know what, you're kind of proud right now, it would be hard to see. Why? Because I'm proud. And, and by definition, pride creates a, a level of self-deception. So here's a question. What if there was something that could actually be a little bit of an early indicator, an early warning system, so to speak, that pride was setting in? And then, and then what if that thing could actually then not only tell you that you're a little bit proud, but could also adjust your level of pride? Think of it sort of like a thermostat, if you will, something that I'm sure over the last couple days you've taken more notice of in your home, realizing how uh, cold it can be outside, and your, your thermostat does two things. It, it measures the temperature in your home, but then also you can push a button or move a dial, and you can actually change the temperature of your home. So a thermostat not only measures, but it also can create a different environment. And I want to suggest to you that prayer does that for pride. That prayer is a good measurement of pride. In other words, proud people don't pray. And prayer also is a means by which we can re- uh, regulate pride in our lives. By, by praying more, there's a greater likelihood that we'll be able to push down the pride in our hearts and elevate the elements of humility, that God creates humility in us through prayer. And I want to show you that this morning through First uh, Peter chapter 5. So first, notice that there's an important principle that we have in this text, and it's this, found in verse 5. God opposes the proud, or some translations say resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Now, if you're a student of the Bible, you will know that this is not the only place that this principle emerges. In fact, this statement in First Peter 5 is actually a quote of an Old Testament proverb. Somewhere in your notes you might want to write down the verse Proverbs 3.34 because that's the text that Peter is quoting. And here's what Proverbs 3.34 says. It says this, Towards the scorners, he, meaning God, is scornful, but to the humble he gives favor. Let me read it again. Toward the scorners, he is scornful, but to the humble he gives favor. So the meaning of that is that God treats the scornful people with scorn himself. Or God gives the scornful people a taste of their own medicine. It's sort of, sort of like if someone says to, to God and his rules, Hey, I'm not going to do what you want. I'm just going to do what I want. And then when God lets you do what you want and you go, Help me, help me. God says, Hey, just you know, do what you want. You want to run your own life? As I've said in other messages on the subject of pride, it's sort of like God saying, Hey, you want to run your own life? Good luck with that. Did you see how that turns out? And so God deals with scornful people by treating them scornfully. And yet he treats the humble with favor. The other passage you might want to write down is James chapter 4, verses 6 to 8. Another passage that carries the same idea. Here's what it says, James 4, 6. But he gives more grace, therefore it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. And then listen for the prayer theme in verse 8. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your heart, you double-minded. So the principle, whether it's in the Proverbs or in James or in Peter, is is fairly straightforward. God opposes, resists, uh, fights against the proud, but he gives grace to those who embrace humility. So that's the principle. What does it mean? 
Well, let me tell you what it means. First, it means this. It means that proud people receive divine resistance. I'm going to suggest to you this morning that every person in this room receives something from God. You're in one of two positions. You're either receiving resistance because of your pride, or you're receiving assistance because of your humility. So there's one of two buckets that you can be in, resistance or assistance. My guess is that some of you could look back on 2009 and know that 2009 was a year of resistance. You, you saw God time and time again just kind of resisting because it was sort of like you were, God was trying to send you a message, and he was, um, about your pride and your need of him. So the first thing here is that proud people receive divine resistance. I probably don't need to define pride for you, but let me just give you a few synonyms. Haughty, arrogant, big-headed, stuck up, uh, think you're better than everybody else. A, A proud person, in effect, seeks glory for him or herself. It's a person who wants honor and fame, acclaim, respect, and they just want more. In fact, they want so much more that in their pursuit of that more, they they actually would never be satisfied until they had everything. And if they had everything, they would be like God. So at the end of the day, what pride is really about, according to C.J. Mahaney in his book, Humility, pride is about contending with God for supremacy. Proud people are in competition with God for supremacy, to be like him. Now, all three passages, Proverbs, uh, James, and Peter, 1 Peter, say the same thing, and that is that proud people are resisted by God. That word resist or oppose is a military term. It means to set oneself in battle against. Um, the, the word has the nuance there of trying to compete against someone else, whether in a military endeavor or in sports or something else. You're on one side and someone else is on the other. So you're on this team and then someone else is on the other team. And in sports, the, um, the, the goal is I'm trying to get the ball from this end of the football field to that end of the football field. And this team's job is to try and stop me from doing it. So their job is to oppose me or I'm going to try and shoot a basket or shoot a ball in that basket. And, and your five guys and my five guys are going against opposite baskets and we're opposing each other. So there's an opposition that's taking place. The problem here is that the opposition is God. So the the deck is sort of stacked in his favor, wouldn't you agree? It would sort of be like if you showed up for, let's say, a pickup football game um, next weekend and in a park and you got some friends together and suddenly these guys start coming out of their cars and you notice that across on the other side of the line of scrimmage is someone with the number 18 and, and his name is Peyton Manning. And you look around and you're like, oh, man, this is over. You know, we're not going to win. That's Unless, of course, he decides not to play the third and fourth quarter, we'll be okay. So, <laughs> so the, the point is, is that God is continually resisting you. Like like the, the opposition that would come if, if someone really good was on the other side. And so you're trying to move the ball from this side to that side, and, and there's this opposing reality. Now, opposing God is not a very good idea. And what's worse is that the nuance of the language here is it's continual. It means that God is continually opposing you. So proud people have this continual reference point as it relates to God, that God is set against them. 
And the reason why is that God knows that it's not good for your pride to have its free course, sort of, um, to, to be set on a free course and, and not have any sort of boundary put around your life. In other words, that, that we end up really messing up our lives very easily. So God doesn't want to oppose you because he's needy, doesn't want you to trust him or rely upon him because somehow he's deficient or lonely. No, God wants you to trust him because it's actually the best thing in all the universe for you. And so his opposition is actually kind because God is showing you what your life would be like if you tried to live it without him. So God resists the proud. Now there's some great examples, some stunning examples of people who were proud and how God resisted or opposed them. One example would be King Herod Agrippa. He was giving a speech to a delegation from the cities of Tyre and Sidon. And Acts 12.22 indicates that he was angry with these people. They probably had tried to rebel against him, and so he sent some forces, and they ended up coming back and paying homage to him. And so in in his own honor, he constructed or had made a, a robe completely of silver, the Biblical historian Josephus tells us that he had a a robe of silver, and then as he came out to the delegation, the people cried out, the voice of a God and not a man, the voice of a God and not a man. And Acts 12, 22 tells us that God struck him dead. And actually, the verse says, he was eaten by worms and died. And all God's people said, gross. Okay. (laughs) The second story is that of King Nebuchadnezzar. Um, in Daniel 4, we read that one day the king was walking around the, the royal palace in the city of Babylon, and he looked around and realized that Babylon was a very majestic city. And in Daniel 4.30, it says that Nebuchadnezzar said, Is not this great Babylon that I have built for a royal dwelling by my mighty power and for the honor of my majesty? Now, when I heard that verse, it, it brought to mind moments when I've painted a wall in a room and step back and said, look at this, baby, look at this wall, look at this room. Or, you know, you bought a new car and you kind of walk around, look at this thing. And just for a fleeting moment, you think thoughts like, look what I've done. Don't do that. Because you could be sent out to eat grass like Nebuchadnezzar. Because here's what happens. At the minute that he said this, God responded with judgment. He lived out in a field, he ate grass like an ox, his hair grew long, his nails became the claws of a bird, and God did all of this to humble him. And eventually, Nebuchadnezzar comes to his senses, and this is what he says in Daniel 4.37. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the King of Heaven, for all his works are right, and his ways are just. And here's a key little verse, this ought to be underlined in your Bibles. And those who walk in pride, he is able to humble that is an important little verse. So how does God oppose us? Well, you know how he does it? Sometimes he does it right away and rather dramatically. Sometimes it's just you get this sense that what you're trying to do isn't working. That no matter how hard you try, it's like you're hitting a wall. And the harder you work, the worse things get. And, and the harder you do things, the, the, the faster you do them, the, the more you say, I'm going to do this, the worse they get. In, in our marriage, um, I'm the kind of person who kind of steps back when something isn't working, and, and my wife is the one who kind of rushes forward. And, and so if a door doesn't close on the car, I'll stop and look, and she'll just shut it harder. Okay? <laughs> and one year we were camping, 
And we had arrived at 3 o'clock in the morning to our campsite, and we were trying to set up our tent, and I asked her to go close the, um, the trunk of the car, and so it's dark out, and we have some of our stuff still in the trunk of the car, and she goes over there, and she tries to close it, and it didn't close, and so she went, it won't close. She's going like this. I'm like, whoa, 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 wait, wait, wait. And it came around, and the reason it wouldn't close was because the air mattress was over top of the tongue of the, uh, of the car. And so the more she, 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 uh, she went up and down, up and down, the harder she worked, the worse it got. Well, gratefully, we had, you know, a little patch. Well, the problem was every time she did it, the air mattress moved. And by the time we were done fixing that thing, we had nothing left but hard ground to sleep on. So maybe that's how your life has felt in 2009. The harder you work, the worse it gets. Well, sometimes God opposes us by showing us that, look, the harder you work, you're just banging your head against the wall. And and, and the harder you work, the more I'm going to resist. That no matter what you do, at the end of the day, if I let you be successful in this, you'll think it was your ability that pulled it off. Another way that God opposes us is sometimes he, he takes the joy away. I mean, almost in a supernatural sense, we're doing the same things, we're in the same marriage, we're in the same situation, but the reality is God has just taken all the joy. And, and part of the reason is that he's just taken the delight, because our delight isn't in him, it's really become a delight in ourselves. And then the other way that God opposes us, Romans 1 tells us that he just simply gives us what we want. One of the curses of God is not that he only opposes us, but that he opposes us by saying, here, you want to live your life like this? Go ahead, try that, and let's see how that works. And God just lets us run our own course. And boy, it was it's really a mercy of God that he graciously tells us when we're heading off the wrong direction. God is merciful in his opposition. So God opposes or resists the proud. Proud people receive divine resistance. Here's the second thing. And that is that humble people receive divine assistance. So humble people receive divine assistance. Now what's humility? Humility means to be brought low. And in a biblical sense, it means that you understand who you are in light of who God is. In other words, if you're proud, you really don't understand who God is. You have an elevated view of yourself, which is ridiculous when you consider the immensity and the superiority and the supremacy of who God is. So humility is understanding who you are in light of who God is. And then also, because of your understanding of who you are, it means that you treat other people differently. So humility is always a a horizontal and a vertical um, dimension. Always has a vertical and a horizontal dimension. Let me put it this way. Proud people don't think or consider others. One of the ways that you'll know you're proud is if you do things and you just don't think about the effects on other people. You just do what you want whenever you want and you never think about all the consequences for other people. See, a proud person really doesn't have any reference point that there's other people who are affected. They they live their life as if they're the only person who has anything to say or any impact on their particular decisions. So, in God's economy, humility is the key to receiving something very important. And that is that humility is the key to receiving God's grace. His special help or divine assistance. By definition, grace means the provision of what you don't deserve. It means that there's an ability, there's a power, there's resources that God supplies to you that you wouldn't have on your own. So you could think of grace very simply as God's help. The focus 
of God's grace is not so much on what is given, but it's on the fact that you have need, and it's the fact that God is the one who is giving it. And what the Bible tells us is that the only people who receive God's help are the humble people. Now, why wouldn't God give proud people divine grace? Here's why. Because they think that if they received it, they either A, deserved it, B, earned it, or somehow created it themselves. It's only the humble person who will receive the good thing from God and say, thank you, I didn't deserve this, I couldn't create this, I don't even know fully what to do with this, it is a complete gift from you. So God uses humility and grace to create honor and glory to Him. Now, Receiving God's grace and help is really an important theme throughout the Bible. A couple examples. Hebrews 4.16. The writer of Hebrews says, Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Notice the connection between mercy, grace, and coming boldly into the throne of grace. That, That has to mean prayer. Further, the Apostle Paul had some sort of ailment or a person or something that was a thorn in his flesh and when he prayed to have it removed jesus said to him my grace is sufficient for you for my power is made perfect in weakness so therefore paul said this therefore i will boast all the more gladly in my weaknesses so that the power of christ may rest upon me so the idea is that god has this vast treasure this vast amount of spiritual resources that he's ready to pour out to help us ready to give us the 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 desire the ability you know god can give you desires that you don't have today he can give you abilities that you don't have today he can empower you for to be able to do things for his glory that you can't do on your own he has this vast reservoir of grace ready to pour it out but he doesn't pour it out on people who are proud he only pours it out on those who are humble so the question is is your life characterized by divine resistance or by divine assistance is your life characterized as somehow being opposed by god or is your life characterized as being helped by god The question is, do you want to be on God's team or not? And what Peter does is he lays down here the fact that humility is the difference between resistance and assistance. Now, how does all of that relate to prayer? Well, I want to suggest to you, with with that principle in mind, that, that prayer creates and cooperates with our humility. And prayer is an essential part of that. Now look at verse 6. Verse 6 says, humble yourselves, and the next word is therefore. Now that word is there because it connects what happens in verse 5 with what happens in verse 6. Verse 5 is the principle, verse 6 is the application. So in light of the fact that God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble, then therefore what ought we to do? Well, we ought to humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God so that at the proper time He may exalt you, casting all your care upon Him because... He cares for you. So, there's two things that I want you to see here. How prayer combats pride. Or in light of the fact that he's calling for some application, what are we to do? The first is this. Peter calls us to actively pursue humility. So, in 2010, you need to know that you don't have to do a single thing to have pride grow. Pride will grow naturally in you. As naturally as it grows in a three-year-old child or a two-year-old child. You don't have to teach your children how to be proud. 
The other day I was watching Savannah out of the corner of my eye and she found a mirror and she was bowing to herself. And I was like, like, what is this? She's bowing. And I'm like, what, what, what? What is this? Who, who did this to you? Eve, right? So how did this happen? How did this happen? So the, you don't have to do anything to create pride. It is as natural as breathing. But Peter says, humble yourselves. Now, first of all, it's a command in verse 5. Um, it's the same word that's, uh, or in verse 6 rather, it's the same word that's used in verse 5, and it's in the passive mood, which means that we are to allow it to happen. So you can't create humility, but you can put yourself in a posture such that humility can be created in you. So the call to humble ourselves is a call to embrace humility. So the first thing there is that you need to understand that you have a need to learn to be humble. If you think that you've mastered humility, you're proud and you need to learn how to be humble. In fact, the most humble people in the world don't believe they're humble. And it's not like some sort of disingenuous, oh, no, 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 I'm not, I'm not humble, I'm not humble. And you're about, you're right, you're not humble because of how you're saying the word humble, right? So, but it's this sense that a person who is humble really believes that they've got to grow a lot more in humility. It's, Sort of like Christ-likeness. The more you know about it, the bigger and more you need, uh, the more, uh, uh, what am I trying to say here? The, the, the more you know about Christ and Christ-likeness, the further you know you've got to go in order to be like Him. So the same thing is with humility. The more you know about humility, the further and further it seems that you are from the real goal. So humility means that we choose to understand who we are in light of who God is. It also means that we choose to release control. Look at what he says. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so at the proper time he may exalt you. That idea of mighty hand means that God is ruling over all circumstances. It means that he's in control of your life. And it also means that he's the one who's responsible for the exaltation. So God gets to be supreme. He gets to control when the trial is over. And Peter says, humble yourself under the mighty hand of God so at the proper time he can exalt you. So our call is to realize that we need to be humble and we need to release our desire to be in control. So the principle is the proud are resisted, the humble are assisted. And then Peter says, so embrace the idea of humility. Now, how does all of this connect to prayer? Well, it all connects because of that last little phrase, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. The call is to cultivate humility, listen, by praying. Get this. Prayer creates humility. It sets us in the right place. It reminds us who we really are. It reminds us that we need help. So one of the reasons, if you struggle with prayer or you don't like to pray, one of the reasons, if not the main reason why you don't like to pray, is you don't like acknowledging that you need help. You don't like saying to somebody, would you help me with this? You'd rather run your own life, and that's why prayer is difficult. Because every time you have to talk to God about your needs, it's embarrassing that you aren't supreme. It's acknowledging, I need assistance here, I need help here. And so that phrase, casting all your care upon Him, is absolutely critical to the whole meaning of this passage. And the reason is, is that the word casting is a participle. It describes what humility looks like. It is 
a word that describes the action of humble yourself. So humble yourself, how? Casting all your care upon him. For example, if I were to say to my wife, look, get to church as fast as you can, driving very quickly. Okay? Driving very quickly modifies get to church fast. It describes how she is to do what I've told her to do. Or if I were to say to you, listen carefully, taking good notes. It describes what listening carefully looks like. That taking good notes is a descriptive of what it means, uh, listening, taking good notes is descriptive of what it means to listen carefully. So the two are linked together. When it comes to this passage, it means that humbling yourself happens by casting your anxieties on God. Humility and casting are absolutely linked. You humble yourself by casting your care upon the Lord. And how do you cast your care upon the Lord? You do so by prayer. And that means that the things in our life that we don't cast upon the Lord, that we don't talk to Him about, that we don't come before Him and pray about, that we don't say, Lord, I need your help, are often those things that we think we've got control of. In fact, my guess is that most of us can chart the elevation of our prayer life based upon the valley that we're in. In other words, we're most inclined to call out to God when we are in our biggest need. We're most inclined to say, God, help me, when we realize i got a real big problem here. The reverse is also true. When things are going great and life seems to be soaring and you don't have a lot of needs, guess what happens? Your prayer life goes in the tank. Why? Because we are more inclined to pray when we are aware of our need. And it works the other way as well. That prayer reminds us of our need. So how do you cultivate dependency when you're not in the valley? Answer, be sure you are seeking God faithfully in prayer. Because prayer creates humility. Now that word care is an important word. It describes um, one's concern for the needs of others and for oneself. Paul uses it in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter or 2 Corinthians 11 to describe his concern for the church. He said, "Beside everything else, I face the daily pressure of my concern for all the churches." So in a general sense, it's just his his heart for what's going on in the church, but it also can refer to Other things in life, Luke uses it in this respect, and what fell among the thorns, they are those who hear as they go on their way, they are choked by the cares and the riches and the pleasures of life. So the word cares there means the the stuff of life. So I don't think it's, it's a stretch to say that when we cast our cares or our anxieties that that's referring to the stuff of life. So it means that as you're going about your day, as you're going about your life, that there's this constant con- connection to God in terms of the things that are going on in your life, that you're, you're talking with Him, praying with Him, uh, seeking His counsel, asking for His help. You're fulfilling the call of, of Psalm uh, 55.22, Cast your burden on the Lord, and He will sustain you. So what prayer does is it creates humility and it strikes at the heart of prayer by acknowledging, I need your help. And by every day coming before the Lord and saying, Lord, before I begin this day or at this lunch hour or in this evening, before I go to bed or as we're around this meal, we're acknowledging that this food right in front of us, no matter how it tastes or how it got here, all of this is from you. That without you, this stuff wouldn't be here today. Prayer reminds us that we're not in charge, that we can't make it on our own, 
that our future is uncertain, that life doesn't make sense. It reminds us that we need help. And the challenge with prayer is, is that every time we pray, it reminds us that we are not infinite, we are not God, we are not supreme, and we have a boatload of need. Prayer is something that stares us in the face and reminds us that we are not God. I don't know about you, but I don't like things that remind me of that. I don't like things that are just there that remind me of how foolish I am or how ridiculous I can be. Our third son received a, a great gift for Christmas. It was his first model airplane. And I've learned over the last four days that there's three levels of model airplanes. There's the snap-together kind, which I would highly recommend. There's the hard kind, which apparently doesn't come with directions or anything. I don't know what that comes with. And then there's this middle kind, which says for ages 10 and above, which is a complete lie. It's like <laughs> master's degree and above is what it should be. So we're putting this thing together, and it, it's impossible. They've got to glue this and put this all together. And, and uh, so we got the, the cockpit thing together, and the pilot's in there. And we're trying to insert it into the plane. And I've said to him, who designed this thing? My son's, I mean, it doesn't fit. It doesn't even close to fit. This is, this is terrible. I said to Jeremiah, I don't know who designed this thing, but he didn't know what he was doing. So I just glued it in there, just put it in there, said, this is the way it should be. So we just let it go. Two days later, Jeremiah and I are working on the plane again. He comes back to me and said, Dad, I just put the fuselage on and there's something strange about the plane. I said, yeah, what is it? He said, the pilot's facing backwards. (laughs) (laughs) To which I said, he's a very talented pilot, apparently. (laughs) This is a very special plane, son. That's specially designed. He can see that he's rise backwards. He doesn't know that. So. Every time I see this plane in the house, I'm reminded of my inability to follow directions. And it's just a reminder that I'm not supreme. That I just don't do things as well as I'd like to. And you know what? Prayer can be like that for many of us as well. It's just this constant reminder that we're not all of what we need to be. But here's the thing. You know what? We need those kind of things in our life. And we need prayer because if we're not careful, if you don't pray, hear me, you will become proud. Because prayer is saying, I need your help. All right, so what do we do with this? Some quick applications. The first is this. Look, there's some of you here this morning, you've never received Christ. And and the fact of the matter is, the reason is, is because you won't admit that you're a sinner. And, And the greatest expression of pride in your life is the fact that you won't acknowledge what God says about you, and that he says that you're a sinner and you need a Savior, and you're trying to find all sorts of ways to forgive yourself by self-atoning, make a way, and you, you do this by comparing yourself with other people, all sorts of religious activities that you think are going to earn God's favor. And the reality is it's not going to work. And, and the only way the Bible says that you can be forgiven of your sins is to confess that you're a sinner and cry out to Jesus for help. Because he's the one alone that could pay for sins. So that's the first prayer that God answers of anybody. By saying, Lord Jesus, I'm a sinner and I need a Savior and I need you. The second thing is, for those of us who know Jesus, is this ought to just increase in your heart a a worship and a love for Jesus. Because think of this, here is the Son of God, fully God, fully man, who's praying and asking for the Father's help, who becomes our ultimate example of humility. And so when you think of praying to Jesus, you ought to think of one who knows what it's like to pray and to seek help, even though he was fully God 
And the Bible tells us that he was also the perfect example of humility towards others. So when you come before him, you're coming to one who understands both our burdens and our challenges, but also is fully aware of what it's like to seek God's help and our greatest example. So this ought to just increase your love for Jesus in a, in, a, in a marvelous way. Here's the third thing. I want to call some of you to repent of prayerless, of prideful prayerlessness. For, for some, 2009 was a year filled with prayerlessness. And I want you to realize that the core of that is the issue of pride. That, that really you think you can run your own life, and that's why, pride, why prayerlessness has been a part of your existence. A friend of mine says it this way, that prayerlessness is my declaration of independency from God. So the question is, you know, you think you're too busy? You think you don't have enough time to, to pray? Here would be my question to you. Do you have time to eat? Yeah, good time to eat. Right. And you know what the difference is between um, prayer and eating for you? No. So what's the difference? You know what the difference is? The difference is you think you can't live without food, but you think you can live without God. That's the difference. And see, that's that's the problem, is your, your belly gets hungry, get a little grouchy. You're like, come on, let's, let's get some food. And the reality is your soul is shrinking, but you'd rather have a pizza than you'd have prayer. And I want to call you to say at the end of this year and the beginning of a new one to say, Lord, 2010, it has to be different. I'm, I'm, I'm going to turn from prideful prayerlessness. Number four, pray more, never less. Oh, I hope that this message and this week will help some of you to have a renewed passion to pray, to, to mark off some time, to give up a lunch hour, to, to get up earlier, to go to bed early, for crying out loud, watch less TV, do whatever it takes, but pray more, don't pray less, pray more. Maybe one of your goals in 2010, with this year is going to be a year where I pray more. And then how would you do that? Here's the final one, pray with others. Praying with other believers is a ballast to my prayer life. When I pray with others, I find I pray much better in private. I sort of mark my prayer life by who I'm praying with next because other believers help me in my praying. It's sort of like a a buoying effect. You don't need a book or a seminar or a lecture for that matter. You don't even need a sermon on how to pray. If you want to learn how to pray, then pray with others. And in fact, if you want to learn how to pray, then I would tell you, why don't you make time in your schedule this next week and find ways to pray with other people during our prayer week emphasis. And the reason that we have these prayer events is because I know that if you were to come and if you were to pray with other people and if there could somehow be within your heart a renewed passion for prayer as you pray with others, you will pray differently and better in the next year. So College Park, I'm calling you today to pray. And this first Sunday, this first week of the new year, I, I want to challenge you to pray with a, a new level of passion, a new level of zeal, a new level of power. Because I want you to realize something, that nothing's going to happen in our church or in your life this year without prayer. Nothing. God has things that He wants to do for our church. He has things He wants to do in our lives. But He won't do those things unless we pray. Because He designs prayer to be a vital part of His process of unfolding His wisdom, about revealing His will, and giving the grace that we so desperately need. The problem is, is that often we can have all sorts of things that crowd into our lives and take the place of prayer. Even people in ministry. Ian Bounds is a prolific writer on prayer. Here's what he said. It is better to let the work go by default than to let the praying go by neglect. 
Nothing is well done without prayer for the simple reason it leaves God out of the account. It is easy to be seduced by the good to the neglect of the best until both the good and the best perish. How easy to neglect prayer or abbreviate our praying simply by the plea that we have church work on our hands. Satan has effectively disarmed us when he can keep us too busy doing things to stop and pray. So let's not be disarmed this year. Let's not be proud. Instead, let's embrace humility and by God's grace, make the choice to pray and say, God, help us to pray lest we become proud and help us to dial down pride in our life by praying, praying, praying more, more, never less. Never less. Lord Jesus, we um, know that the penchant for pride and self-exaltation in our hearts is a constant foe that we have to fight. And so we thank you that you've given us resources like your word and the community of faith, and you've given us the spirit to help us to battle our own hearts. And Lord, we want 2010 to be a, a different kind of year. Lord, I want 2010 for my own life to be a different year. And so I pray that you would place within your people today a renewed desire to seek you, to humbly come before you and say, Lord, I've got needs, and I'm so sorry that I haven't talked to you about them. Lest we talk about prayer and not do it, I want to give you an opportunity just where you are to talk to the Lord right now. For some of you, you may need, right now, as I'm just talking, you just begin praying, you, you may need to confess to the Lord that 2009 was a year of resistance, a year that made you angry, instead of a year that dropped you to your knees and said, God, I need your help. Maybe you need to think back of those trials, those difficulties in 2009 that you cursed, and today need to say to the Lord, I'm going to bless your name, because those things... Open my eyes to my needs. Could you ask the Lord about the status of pride in your heart? Could you maybe think of a few areas where pride is beginning to surface? Could I ask you just to pray about what is something in your prayer life today that needs to change? You know, the text says, Cast all your anxieties on Him because He cares for you. It is mercy that God resists us. It's an emblem of His love, but He doesn't let us go where our wicked hearts would want to go. So maybe today is just a reminder, regardless of your age or your status in life, that, you know what, whether you're a teenager, a young person, a senior, a married person, a single person, a college student, you start out new in your career, you're a newly married couple, whatever, whatever lot in life you have, what needs to change in 2010 in regards to your communion with your Savior? O risen Christ, perfect example of humility and dependency. Thank you that we can come boldly to the throne of grace and we can receive mercy and help in our time of need. And I pray that this week would be a sweet season of intercession and worship, a ballast of humility and a decrease of pride as we seek you.
And we ask this in Jesus' name.